HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. COVID has laid bare the many contradictions, inequities, and failures of our current food system, especially with regard to food insecurity, which has dramatically increased over the past year. Thankfully, the Biden-Harris administration has prioritized this issue, and I personally am feeling optimistic about their ability to make a meaningful impact. One organization that has some advice for the new administration on this very topic is Hunger Free America, an organization helmed by Joel Berg that has been leading the fight to end domestic hunger for decades. After the election, Hunger Free America released a comprehensive 40-plus page memo to the then-transition team on how the Biden-Harris administration can end hunger, slash poverty, and improve nutrition for all Americans. And I'm so pleased that it has, it has brought Joel to the show today to talk us through it. Joel, um, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So before we get into the actual meat of the memo, can you first tell us about Hunger Free America and the work that you do? Yes, it's good to be here. Hunger Free America is a national advocacy and direct service organization. We're really building the movement necessary to end hunger in America by creating the policies and programs necessary to do so. And so our direct service is running the National Hunger Hotline on behalf of USGA, running a VISTA AmeriCorps program, which is sort of a domestic Peace Corps that places people for a year with uh, hunger groups around the country to build their capacity. We uh, have a strategic volunteerism program uh, to make it even more effective to fight hunger, engaging people with their professional skills. Uh, we help people access uh, benefits uh, around uh, the country, SNAP and, and uh, WIC, and we also help people access 
private and public food resources around the country. And then on the advocacy side, we're really pushing to uh, for policies that create jobs, raise wages, uh, reduce poverty by making things like housing and health care and child care more affordable, and then ensuring an adequate safety net of programs like SNAP and, and, and WIC and uh, universal uh, school meals. Our belief is that's the only way we can end hunger in, in, in America. So really, in contrast with some groups that give the impression sometimes that we can end this problem with more food drives, which is really not even close to true. And how long have you been doing this work? Uh, what, what is I, your background? This June 16th will be my 20th year with the organization, but who's counting? Uh, <laughs> until uh, about six years ago, we were called... Uh, New York City Coalition Against Hunger. So I grew with the organization to help turn it into a national organization. And before that, I worked for eight years in the Clinton administration. I did work at the U.S. Department of Agriculture directly for the Secretary of Agriculture, working on the startup of the AmeriCorps program, uh, then starting a, a gleaning and food recovery initiative, and then ending my eight years at USDA, heading up a national community food security initiative, really trying to bridge the work between people working on local food systems and nutrition work and people working on economic empowerment and people working on strengthening the food safety net. So I've been working on, on hunger issues, I hate to say it, for a few decades now. I hope we would have ended it already so I could put myself out of work and go <laughs> open up a nightclub in Dakar. But unfortunately, it's still here. So I'll have to keep working until the day we do end it. And I do believe we can and should and someday will. We're the only industrialized Western nation on the planet that had this level of, of hunger even before COVID. It's absolutely ridiculous that we have it, and it's such an easily solvable problem, really, with the c correct political will. Um, all right. Well, let's let's talk about how big of a problem hunger is. And before we do that, I want to kind of um, define some terms. So when we talk about measuring poverty and income and food insecurity, we often hear the term poverty line. What's the poverty line and what, is it, what does it actually mean and how is it measured? The poverty line is the number above which that someone is declared by the federal government to be living in poverty. It's a very meager number. It's about $18,000 for a family of, of, of three uh, and a little more for a family of four. It's about 26000 for a family of four or, or, or 12000 for you know one person living on their own. It's not regionally indexed, uh, meaning that the level is the same in New York City as it would be in rural West Virginia, even though costs are much more in New York City where I live. And, and so for one person, it's you know $12,760. And so if you're a person living alone and you make $13,000, the federal mm -hmm. government says you're not poor. And this is pretty critical because eligibility for a lot of programs, such as the SNAP program, which used to be called the Food Stamp program, are based on um, the poverty line. Uh, a much, not to get too wonkish on this, but a, a much better measure is what's called the supplemental poverty measure that builds in the uh, value of benefits, but also builds in uh, builds in uh, the cost of living and really shows that poverty is even higher than the tens of millions of Americans registered by existing poverty measure. So this statistic that's in the memo, when you say there's 58.8 million residents um, living below 
200% of the poverty line. That was from 2019. What does that mean? That means whatever the poverty line is doubled. So to be precise, the poverty line for a family of three is $21,720, right? And, and mm-hmm. so double that is, is you know, about uh, $43,000. So uh, basically, it, it means there are you know, over 50 million Americans uh, living below that number. And, wow. and keep in mind, that was pre-pandemic. We don't have newer poverty numbers since the pandemic, but it's clearly far higher. And the food insecurity slash hunger rate, and we can talk about what that means, is, is, is probably higher still. So how many Americans are suffering from hunger, let's say, pre-COVID? Pre-COVID, there were about uh, 36 million Americans in 2019, including about 11 million American children that couldn't always afford enough food. And this, that's this horribly wonkish term, food insecurity, but I think it's a useful term to really discuss hunger in the American context. Uh, it's generally not people starving in the streets the way you might see in North Korea or some parts of sub-Saharan Africa or some parts of Latin America or, uh, or South Asia, but it is people choosing between food and rent, people rationing food, people dying earlier, make no mistake about it, having less healthy lives, parents going without food to feed their children, and the greatest irony of all, people who are hungry being more likely to become obese because they can't afford the healthier food. And that's a situation that when the economy was theoretically in great shape in uh, 2000 and uh, you know, 19, there were uh, 36 million people in that category. So I'm a little troubled by some of the media narrative now that, oh, in the pandemic, now this has become a problem, Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of implying that the 36 million Americans who were hungry before this didn't matter. And I think really, frankly, that narrative frame has sort of a racial subtext to it and a class subtext to it. Well, when it was just run-of-the-mill poor people, it didn't matter. But now that people we know in our social set are, you know, are in trouble, now it's really an issue. And sometimes even some hunger groups give the impression, well, some rich donor is now hungry. Well, that happens on a rare, rare occasion. But Mm -hmm. what happened was in the pandemic, people who were poor and hungry became poorer and hungrier, mm-hmm. and people who were at the edge of poverty and hunger slipped into poverty and hunger. And there's a lot of mobility, upwards and downwards, between the lower middle class and poverty. It's not this fixed, uh, you know, uh, really set of people who are always poor. That's a, that's a great uh, misconception. And so that's where we are today. And so since the pandemic, you know, uh, tens of millions of kids lost school meals, on any given day in a normal world, whatever normal means these days, 29 million kids would get free or reduced price school meals. Uh, 29 million, half of them would also get free or reduced price breakfast. So those are tens of millions of meals that went away virtually overnight. Uh, The top way that families get food aren't safety net programs, it's through wages, through jobs. And when jobs were eviscerated overnight, and uh, wages and tips went away overnight uh, with the greatest rapid, uh, really, collapse of the economy ever in American history. And I say that even compared to the Depression. The Depression was worse. But actually, between the time of the stock market collapse in 1929 and the peak of unemployment in 1933, that was four years. 
The collapse of the economy this time happened within a few weeks. So you lost mm-hmm. all these school meals. The economy collapsed. So parents didn't have money to, and, and workers didn't have money to buy food uh, anymore. Tens of thousands of senior centers that were serving food around the country uh, you know, closed. Uh, you know, it's important to point out that uh, that the federal safety net programs like SNAP, like WIC, like school meals provide maybe 14 or 15 times the dollar amount of food that food charities do, that food banks, food pantries, and soup kitchens provide. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the media a little over-exaggerates the role of charities in fighting this problem because they're, they're feel good and they make good uh, video. But, but the fact of the matter is they do fill in the gaps and a number of those, particularly community-based food pantries and soup kitchens closed because the people running them, either their staff or volunteers, uh, were people uh, generally uh, who are older and thus uh, were more likely to have compromised immune systems. And then on top of all that, on top of all that, uh, food prices shot up. And so people with their meager wages, their meager SNAP allotments had uh, less purchasing power with their food. Uh, and pantries and kitchens, again, even though they're a small part of the problem, they could buy less food. So you had all this going on at, at once. You know, and I know worser isn't a word in the English language, but I'm continuing bodying to get it to be a word because, you know, things went from bad to worse over the last few decades as America continued to have this skyrocketing hunger epidemic, even when the economy was great. And since the pandemic, things have gone to worser. So Mm -hmm. at least by one estimate in the peak of the pandemic and the economic collapse, 54 million Americans, 54 million Americans lived in households that couldn't afford enough food. Hunger-Free America did a national poll, and we found about four in 10 parents were rationing food to their kids, either uh, skipping meals or reducing uh, portion sizes. So we've, we've clearly had the worst hunger crisis uh, since the pandemic that we've had, uh, really, I, I, I think in some sense, you know, since the, uh, the Great Depression. The only positive sign is in the Depression, at least most of the Depression, and we didn't have any hunger safety net programs, and at least we have some now. Yeah, and some that have miraculously managed to survive the Trump administration, albeit barely. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing that the media often gets wrong, and even elected officials often mislead on, is is they equate proposals to slash programs with actually slashing the programs. Uh, you know, President Trump tried legislative ways to slash hunger programs and even uh, you know the Republican Congress he had this first two years in office he had a Republican Congress was unable to uh, do so even some Republicans in the Senate understood the importance of the anti-hunger safety net and they stopped him and then he tried a number of administrative ways to cut hunger funding and those were either stopped by courts, or, mm-hmm. or stopped by uh, when Nancy Pelosi uh, and the Democratic majority took the House. So most of the Trump administration proposals to slash hunger funding failed. He did succeed in scaring the Dickens out of even legal immigrants, so he scared many people out of applying. So I guess that was a backdoor cut. Uh, but clearly, uh, the Republicans, and I don't say Republicans lightly, we're a nonpartisan organization, Hunger for America. It's just a factual statement. Mm-hmm. The Republicans held up more food aid. The House of Representatives, the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives, passed a massive increase in food aid last May, and the Republicans held it up just 
until a few weeks ago, uh, where you know Schumer and Pelosi pushed the Republicans in the White House to push it over the line. And I know the recovery bill is controversial. It wasn't as robust as I would like for low-income people, but it did include $13 billion in aid uh, food aid for low-income people, primarily through a, a boost in SNAP, what used to be called food stamps. Uh, and so really, that was a, a major victory for Schumer and Pelosi, and really showing that there is, a, you know, some people on all sides of the spectrum say there's no difference between the two parties. And I think, again, we're not partisan, but it's just a factual basis that's not close to true when it comes right. to our issues or many other issues. It just strikes me, you know, in, in reading the, the background that your wonderfully comprehensive memo line, um, lays out, um, hunger affects black, white, brown people in all 50 states, red, blue, purple alike. Um, it affects Democrats and it certainly affects Trump supporters. And one of my favorite parts of the memo is you point out that ending hunger, we need to remind people, is a central tenet of every religious and secular ethical tradition. And we now live in a country where like 50% of the population seems hellbent on blurring the lines between church and state. So I guess what, you know, my big question is, how is hunger still a problem in the US? How is this still politicized in any way, shape or form? I know that's say, and I would say I've had a lot of time at home over the last few months, like most of people listening. And so one of the things I did is I read the entire King James Bible, Old and New Testament, all the way from Genesis wow. to Revelation. And there's a lot of contradictions in there, but there's one thing that's absolutely fundamentally clear that there's a commandment throughout that you must do something serious about hunger, poverty, inequality of wealth, you must feed strangers, which really meant immigrants. And it's not seen as a charitable effort. It is a justice issue. And it's a central tenet of Islam, of Hinduism, uh, of Buddhism, and every secular ethical tradition. So it is it is both uh, a, a, a moral commandment to do something about this, but it's also in our economic self-interest. No society has thrived economically in the long run if large percentages of that society have failed, have been unable to pay for the basic goods and services of that society. No superpower has remained a superpower for very long if it's uh, failed to feed its, its people. It's just reading about the collapse of ancient Rome. And, and part of the collapse is due to their inability to secure their, their, their food supply and to feed their populace. The reason this uh, continues is because of the broken nature of our political system. It's popular for people to say hunger isn't a political issue. Uh, no one's pro-hunger. And the, the heartbreaking truth is that both statements are absolutely 100% demonstrably incorrect. Hunger is exactly a political issue. The only reason America's the only industrialized Western nation on the planet with the, this level of hunger, even before the pandemic, is the broken nature of our political system. And with all due respect to, to right-wingers who, who vote against giving low-income people tens of billions of dollars of food aid and then go cut the ribbon at uh, the opening of a new charitable food bank that gives out you know a few <laughs> plates of, of food, if you're voting to prevent people from getting higher wages that would reduce their hunger, if you're voting to take away potentially tens of billions of dollars of food from low-income people, you're pro-hunger. And so we haven't explained that well enough to the American people. And while I pointed out in this memo, we, we want to send two messages, which are slightly contradictory, but both true and both vital. 
Number one is hunger does cross racial lines. It does cross regional lines. Many of the states with the highest hunger are parts of the South and Southwest that, that voted for uh, you know President and Trump. Many of the counties in the United States that have the highest hunger are not inner cities. They are rural areas, most of which, if they're white, voted for President Trump. That being said, we also can't gloss over the fact that people of color, and I would also add before I say that, that the largest number of people in America who are poor, who are hungry, who receive government assistance are white. That being said, we can't gloss over the fact that people of color are disproportionately impoverished for a lot of reasons, uh, most prominently because of structural racism over a few hundred years. And so uh, families led by African-Americans have a food insecurity slash hunger rate nearly uh, double that of, of white households. Hispanic households have almost as high hunger rates. And it's also a gender issue. Uh, households headed by single women have uh, uh, food insecurity hunger rates triple the national average. It's also an issue of people with disabilities. Uh, people with disabilities have among the highest hunger rates of anywhere in the country. And what unites you know, single women and uh, people of color and people with disabilities, often they have uh, the least political power. Uh, in, in this country. They certainly often don't have money to donate to uh, politicians to essentially buy their vote in a, quote, legal <laughs> way. This is a podcast, so you can't see my air quotes, but you can imagine. <laughs> you know, and some of the greatest crimes in campaign finance are what are illegal. So the long answer is that's why we have hunger in America. It's We've adopted from the English tradition, the tradition of blaming poor people for their poverty, and so you compare us to even Canada, just across the border, where they had more of the French tradition influencing them, where they had more of a collective social response to this. Uh, you know, and when England was building debtors' prisons, uh, you know, France was building housing for low-income people who could be homeless. And we inherited the English tradition of blaming poor people for their poverty, number one. And number two, we have the very unique uh history of race in America and racism in America. And even though the largest number of people in America who are hungry, who get government assistance, as I said, are white, even though many of those people are in states that voted for President Trump, that's not the national narrative. And that's not what the right wing who opposes these programs wants you to believe. They want you to believe it's the other. They frankly want you to believe it's non-white people. Uh, and I don't say this again lightly, that uh, there was a quote in the New York Times when Trump shut down the government a few years ago on a whim. We almost forget all the things he did. He, he shut down the government basically can, on a whim. How can we keep up? Like, how can we, I mean, just like a week ago, there was a bombshell recording of him just openly trying to overturn votes in Georgia. Like, it that is, wasn't enough unless he got a police officer killed. It wasn't, it, 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 it wasn't enough. And the reason I point to the government shutdown, there was a, uh, a federal employee who was a corrections worker in a federal corrections facility who was uh, furloughed because of the shutdown. And they said, Trump is hurting the wrong people. Trump is hurting the wrong people. And, and I believe that was a white person saying he should be hurting non-white people, not white people. Yeah, and, and first of all, it's shocking to have any American say the president of the United States should be hurting any other, uh, you know, uh, Americans. So we we can't shy away from the reality of, of structural racism and and really built-in racism being one of the reasons we've had such opposition 
to anti-hunger, you know, programs as as well as, you know, as we saw with the, the bloody insurrection at, at Capitol Hill that happened uh, just this week. There's no question racism and anti-Semitism were, were your key uh, components uniting many of the people who were putting the United States government under physical risk. I mean, so you could answer. see it on their T-shirts. You could... Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, you know, Auschwitz guard, you know, proudly. Yeah, that's that's not not exactly subtle. And and and, and look, you know, I worked at USDA for eight years. The USDA building is named after a man named Jamie Whitten, who was the head of the Appropriations Committee at USDA, overseeing USDA in Congress for decades. He was an ardent segregationist. He voted against every single piece of civil rights legislation ever. He uh, basically said, if you feed the end people, they won't work. He said, if you expand food stamps, they'll just spend it on wine and frivolity, was his quote. He, so he that opposed, like originated with him? Because yeah. that's still, I think. And, and, um, oh, it's still there. And, yeah. and he even opposed school meals. And the reason I mention him is not only is the building named after him, and it should be named after someone different, perhaps Shirley Chisholm would be a great name since she helped create the modern food stamp uh, program, but you know, he and Southern segregationists purposely set up these programs to be run by states as opposed to the federal government. If you look at all the rest of USDA, the Forest Service programs are run directly by the federal government. The Rural Development programs are run directly by the federal government. The farm programs are run directly by the federal government. Now, that doesn't prevent the federal government from discriminating, uh, and the federal government certainly discriminated against black farmers, but it's even more pronounced the discrimination when uh, programs are run by state governments. And that was purposely why the Southern segregationists who controlled Congress in the 60s and 70s when these programs were set up, the Nutrition Safety Net programs, designed it uh, so that states could keep uh, food away from people they didn't like, including civil rights troublemakers. And, and, and so my long answer to why we haven't ended hunger in, in America is blaming the victim, racism, and uh, the lack of serious campaign finance reform in, in America, that you know, farmers who get billions of dollars in, in, you know, in, in subsidies, and sometimes not even for food, you know, uh, your listeners know food, so you understand cotton is on the basis of cotton candy, so you mm-hmm. can't eat it. We subsidize cotton, and for all the excuse for these subsidies, it's just subsidizing uh, you, you know, keeping food affordable. That's not accurate. Now, I support strong support for small farmers, particularly conservation programs that help small farmers stay on the land and protect the environment. I support strong more support for fruit and vegetable growers, but there really is this incredible differentiation that uh, it is far easier to get a million dollar you know, farm payment than it is to get your SNAP benefits, which were $1.40 per meal. And, and so it's all about how messed up our political system is, why we allow such hunger and poverty. Long answer, but it's a really critical to understanding where we are today. But this doesn't yeah. mean we can't fix it. Yeah. You know, and it was we, a, it was a big it was definitely a big question and well done to address it. It sounded hopeless and we're going to go into the solutions, but I just yeah. want to put the hopelessness in, in, in context. We thought we couldn't end slavery in America. We did. Now, it took some profound bloodshed. I'm not recommending that now, but and I hope we don't come to that now. And I don't think we would, but we did mm-hmm. end slavery. A hundred years ago, we had child labor in America. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled not once, but twice. But the president and Congress had no power to ban child labor. We built the political movements, overturned that, and got, by and large, child labor banned in America. It still exists at the margins, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in, in, in the farm economy, but it's, it's illegal. 
you know, just a few decades ago, it was illegal even sooner than that to marry who you loved if they were of the same, you know, sex. And, mm-hmm. and people thought there's no way we're ever going to change this. The religious opposition is too great. But we changed the minds of America. We changed the public policies and we created laws, uh, you know, as, got the courts to rule that you can marry whoever you love. And so I don't want your listeners to think this is hopeless, that since we can't change the world, let's just do a little food drive. Building the movement to pressure our political system to do the right thing, we can change American history and we can finally enter the rest of the civilized world by ending hunger in America. And this is not a radical proposition. This is a mainstream proposition. We've polled and found the vast majority of Republicans, even in conservative states, support public policies, higher wages, and a more robust safety net to end hunger in America. It's a self-perpetuating myth that doing so is politically unpopular or somehow, you know, radical. It, it's, yeah. as we said, it's central to every religious tradition and it's central to economic, you know, thought. One of the things I found just very interesting uh, in terms of the 2020 election results was that Florida obviously went to Trump um, and like, no love lost there for me with that state, but they did pass a $15 minimum wage law. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> who would have thought? I, I was happy. I was happy to see it, but I was I was surprised. Oh, a- absolutely. We know from our polling, the minimum wage is, is very, very uh, popular. And I, I, I frankly don't know, you know, we're nonpartisan, so I'm not in, in the business of publicly giving political parties advice, but progressive. Ah, come on. They need it. They don't run on, on, on this. In, in Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, the governor's proposed raising the minimum wage for years. The Republicans in the state legislature have uh, opposed it. Uh, and as a result, Pennsylvania has a lower minimum wage than any of the surrounding you know, states. And no shock, Pennsylvania has a higher hunger problem. Philadelphia has the highest hunger rate out of any big city in, in the United States and why progressives did not make that a bigger issue. And so I, I think sometimes people on the left or progressives equate being bold with being left. Right. And I don't think that's true. Uh, Certain things such as, uh, you know, rewarding work and making sure work really pays not only by raising the minimum wage, but reforming programs like SNAP, like food stamps. So you don't lose your benefits when you get a raise or you you take on a, a second job. That's really popular. My proposal to say that you should be able to get a free college education in exchange for serving your country in a year or two of national service, that's a way to split the difference between those who are saying, oh, we can't afford free college for everyone, and those who are saying, oh, just give it out to everyone with no work, no requirements. It would be really, really, really popular to say, okay, if you serve your country, you'd have sort of a domestic GI bill and be able to pay your way through college. The other things I propose, what I call an assets empowerment agenda, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, enabling low-income people to earn, save, work their way out of poverty, move from owing to owning, that's that's very popular. So I I consider myself a radical centrist, meaning (laughs) I want really fundamental society-changing policies, but through the political system. And in a way that really ties into mainstream values that appeal to a wide swath of Americans that reinforce the importance of faith, family, community, work. And I think that's the way to have a progressive agenda that can really you know, win 
people that may not originally be on your side. Now, I, I don't necessarily mean when all the elected officials, because uh, frankly, if you're out there you know, uh, defending a, a, a bloody insurrection that killed five people, including a police officer, I don't know that you're going to be won over by policy, but certainly many rank and file voters if they understood that one side was really pushing on something meaningful that was going to improve their lives, that made sense, that was in line with their values, they would uh, strongly support it. So I'm not naive enough to think this alone is going to solve our political system. As I said, we've had problems with our political culture that have gone back hundreds of hundreds of years, not the least of which is our ingrained systematic racism and, you know, misogyny. But finding policies that bring people together uh, will at least, you know, help. And as I wrote in an op-ed for the Philadelphia Inquirer, the only thing that united rural Trump counties in Pennsylvania with urban uh, Biden counties in Pennsylvania were very high poverty rates. Hmm. Many of the highest poverty, highest hunger places in the United States are rural, white, right-wing counties yeah, and overwhelmingly people of color cities that are, are, are very poor as well. And, and that uh, we need policies that lift the economic fortunes of, of both those communities. And, and since this is a food podcast, we can talk more about food. Well, and among- we'll just, well, so that is, so when you talk about economic opportunities and policies, so your memo, which is 40 pages, very comprehensive, it's divided into three sections, right, of both executive and legislative actions. So the raising of the minimum wage, for for instance, that comes in the, the first section, which addresses economic opportunity. Um, what are the other two kind of sections? So there's a, a section on what the administration overall, led by the White House, can do on economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then there's a section on what the administration uh, overall can do on hunger. And then Mm -hmm. a third section of what USDA uh, can do on on hunger. And, you know, uh, some people were pushing for, you know, Marsha Fudge uh, Mm -hmm. to be a secretary of of agriculture. She's had a great record on hunger issues, but frankly, Tom Vilsack's had a great record on on hunger issues. And I think they're going to make a perfect team. And I I sent a separate note to the, the Biden, you know, folks and saying, hey, let's look at all the things HUD can do. Mm-hmm. to reduce hunger. HUD can make it easier for people in public housing to get food benefits. HUD can um, make it easier for uh, people to have uh, urban farms and community gardens You know, at, at, at public housing. HUD can have fund centralized delivery sites for healthier food that people would purchase online would snap. And virtually every domestic federal agency could play a significant role in bolstering food systems uh, and reducing hunger. The Department of Justice can do a better job of getting food benefits for people getting out of prison. They can do a better job of buying local food and healthier food for the federal prison uh, uh, system. The Department of Transportation could have food growing on on federal transportation right-of-ways. The Department of Transportation could help uh, aid uh, the delivery of food, including uh, donated food. The Small Business Administration should be giving technical assistance and seed money to food-related small businesses, including uh, regional food processing facilities. And that's why we've been pushing, and and not just myself, people like Chef Jose Andres, uh, like uh, Congressman Jim McGovern, who's the chair of the House Rules Committee, and also just 
you know, arguably the greatest anti-hunger champion in the House. That's why they've been pushing for the administration to create a hunger czar position, whether mm-hmm. it's at USDA or whether it's in the White House or some other place that really has just not purview for, just for USDA's uh, policies, but really for the entire width and breadth and depth of, of the federal government, because there's so much an energetic, engaged, focused, competent federal government can do to address this problem. Right. And not just a, you know, someone to fight hunger, like a broader sort of secretary of food, right? That can and, oversee. Yeah, well, I, so I, I wouldn't say secretary, but yeah. I don't think it's got to be a cabinet level spots. So I know some people are pushing that. I think more of a staff job. You know, oh, one okay, of the things yeah. I've, I've, I've thrown out there is that there should be a White House task force on these issues. And I've suggested, you know, uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Had that mm-hmm. task force. She's got a great record on hunger. She's got a great work on food issues o- overall, uh, particularly working with farm workers. And I'd say to your listeners, probably more of whom come out of the nutrition side uh, and the food system side and the cooking side, perhaps, than the anti-hunger side, is that these issues are intimately tied. And I should say they're also intimately tied to fighting and defeating COVID since hungry people have compromised immune systems and are more likely to catch COVID, transmit COVID, and because if they're malnourished, they have underlying diseases, they're more likely to die from COVID. So it's, mm-hmm. it's necessary for this. But fighting hunger in the proper way would be really good for small farmers. It should be tied to improving nutrition for everyone, making fresh fruits and vegetables more affordable and more available in all sorts of neighborhoods, having clearer nutrition guidance, uh, for the American people. If you look at the packages, you see three identical packages, three different brands, same weight. One says it's three uh, portions. One says it's two portions. One says it's one. Figuring out how many calories are in there, how much sugar in there, how much sodium there is impossible. And and we need to have a, a, a food safety referee we trust. And I really propose making FDA you know, an independent agency, along with, you know, moving the meat and poultry inspection functions out of USDA and really putting public health people in charge. Part of the problem today is there's no food safety referee that everyone trusts. I break with a lot of my colleagues and sort of the foodie movement saying, you know, I don't think there's any proof that GMOs actually are harmful to public health. They may or may not be bad for the environment. They're definitely bad for small farmers, but mm-hmm. people conflate that. A lot of your listeners probably think GMOs cause cancer. That's just really not factual. Yeah, probably not if they listen to this one. I'm 100% on your page, by the way. <laughs> it's basically the left, hating GMOs is sort of the left-wing equivalent of, of right-winger anti-vaxxers. Although I understand <laughs> yeah. anti-vaxxers or climate change. There are a lot of things wrong with GMOs, but the vast majority of food eaten by Americans Amazing. over the last few decades has been genetically modified. And to yeah. our knowledge, there's not a single, single case of someone getting sick because of that. But why don't people believe it? Because they believe that the FDA and particularly USDA are in, in the hands of, of, of basically corporate interests. And, and this is also tied to worker rights. What the, the meatpacking companies have done is just morally abysmal. You, you may have seen you know, one company, some of their managers were having a pool like a betting pool 
on how many of the employees would get <laughs> sick. I, I can't curse yeah. on this, but that's worth uh, you know a, yeah. a, a few curses on this. Now they're lobbying you know Mitch McConnell to get uh, taken away their liability when they kill uh, you know uh, their workers. It's it's just you know really uh, unconscionable you know uh, what uh, they have done. So we we do need a broader you know food policy and and you know food is so often ignored in public policy. Kika De La Garza, who was the Democratic chair of the Agriculture Committee decades ago, used to quiz people, when do nuclear submarines need to go to the surface? And people would guess, oh, when they need new oxygen. And he'd say, no, you can make oxygen out of, of the water. Oh, when they need to empty out the waste. No, they recycle that into the water after cleansing it. Oh, uh, when they run out of fuel. No, nuclear fuel can go for years. The answer is when they run out of food. Wow. When they run out of food. And I remember, you know, I, I was an old, I don't do gaming now, but decades ago when SimCity first came out, <laughs> right, and you could plan a community. And there are all these details, not just where, you know, water main pipes would go and electricity would go and public transportation would go and housing would go and museums would go. But they, when they were so detailed, they added uh, where stadiums would go, where are, arenas would go. And there was nothing in SimCity about food. Right. And, and, and so we really need food to be at the centerpiece of all federal you know, policy planning. It's, it's, and, and this new administration, God bless it, is really dedicated to uh, racial equity to gender equity, to helping BIPOC people and indigenous uh, people. And these are all really critical issues tied to, to food. If you want to reduce healthcare spending you know, and, and really have universal healthcare, it's going to be a heck of a lot easier if people are, are better nourished since you know, bad you know, nutrition and particularly because of economic uh, factors that force bad nutrition are the top causes of uh, bad health in America today. It really makes sense for uh, this administration to tackle food in a much more coordinated way than includes all the federal agencies. And ironically, the very same steps needed to end hunger in America are also the very same steps needed to reduce obesity in, in, in America. So this just makes sense from every single you know, point uh, of view. I will say in, in, in general, I can't go into this in detail, Detail, but we and many other advocates have had preliminary conversations with key people, uh, part of the new administration, and we're very, very encouraged by their attitudes towards these issues. First of all, their inclusiveness. Uh, they've, they've done more outreach to diverse communities and advocates in the last uh, four weeks uh, than the other side did in, in four years. Uh, President-elect Biden just the other day uh, made hunger and the number of people going to food banks a central part of his speech. Uh, Vice President-elect Harris is talking about this a, a lot. And, and so we're extremely encouraged. Now, our job as advocates is to work with them to get it done, mm -hmm. to congratulate them when they do get it done. And if they're not moving as comprehensively or as fast as, as they should to gently uh, give them a little nudge. Uh, but right now we're very, very encouraged. I mean, granted, yeah. the, the bar over the last four years is, 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 is lower than... <laughs> When, when, I mean, the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, I disagree with them on some things, but I could have a working dialogue with them. And there yeah. are a number of things we actually agreed on. George W. Bush, 
was responsible for restoring benefits for legal immigrants for SNAP, what uh, used to be called uh, food stamps. This administration, we've had no dialogue, no ability to uh, have any progress. So we're, we're very hopeful for the new team. But again, it's our job to make it happen. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we'll be talking through some of the more specific action items outlined in Joel's memo on ending domestic hunger. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheeselandia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese, and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheeselandia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at Cheeselandia. And we're back with Joel Berg, CEO of Hunger Free America. So, okay, I have a couple a couple of questions about some of your action items um, that were included, and then um, a question about something that wasn't included. Um, first, if you had to pull out, like, I don't know, two to three action items that you would like to see happen first, that you would you could arguably say that these are going to make the biggest impact the fastest. What would those be? I would say the the most obvious big things would be raising the minimum wage and increasing the long-term dollar amount of SNAP, you know, food stamps. But Mm -hmm. a a billion people under the sun call for that, so we're not unique. Let me highlight two unique things we've been calling for. Mm -hmm. One is a plan to make it easier for people to apply for a wide variety of food and anti-poverty benefits by smartphone. Right now, you have to contact, you know, 10 different agencies to get eight different, you know, benefits or, or the reverse, you know, uh, eight agencies to get 10 benefits. But it's it's ridiculously cumbersome. And, and before social distancing, you had to go to all these places in person. So we have a legislative proposal, uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, along with Congressman Joseph Pirelli, Congressman Andrea Espelat, and Congressman Jim McGovern have introduced a bill we work with them on to create so-called HOPE accounts to make it easier for people to apply for benefits and access them online and combine that with banking services and also put some seed money down to help low-income people create accounts that they can plan for real long-term self-sufficiency. So that's one. And two is we've proposed a comprehensive food jobs agenda, really helping create living wage jobs in food. And a lot of people who work on food systems work, a lot of foodies, really focusing on community agriculture, you know, and urban agriculture and community gardening. And I want to piss off your listeners, but I got to tell you, those are good things to do, but they're never going to be a serious response to hunger in, in uh, America. Much of the country does not have a 12-month growing period. Uh, it's really labor-intensive to, to do this mechanization in agriculture really, you know, matters. And, and if you do create a lot of jobs in that somehow miraculously, given the nature of the the, the profit margins, they're going to pay dirt wages. On the other hand, then people have proposed, you know, we need a lot more focus on on selling the stuff, community farm stands, farmers markets, etc. Those are great. There need to be more of them. They all need to accept SNAP and WIC, but mm-hmm. the jobs in those places is never going to pay much. What right. really pays money in food is adding value to things processing things, manufacturing things, preserving things, doing so in a more 
comprehensive, really planned out regional manner would not only create more living wage jobs, but would reduce food waste in America, which would greatly help the environment. And some of the extra food could be sold low income to low income people, uh, low prices, or could be given to to uh, food charities. And so that's why we're really proposing that USDA lead, but many other federal government agencies really help this new jobs initiative. You know, uh, I'm sitting here in, in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, there aren't many big farms in Brooklyn. There's a nice one in Rhetoric, but not too far from here, within 100 miles of here, there are a whole lot of serious fruit and vegetable production farms in the Hudson River Valley, on Long Island, in, in New Jersey, in eastern you know, Pennsylvania. And uh, sometimes they don't even harvest that food. Uh, if there's a surplus or there's a slight dent in it because they lose money on the deal. If mm -hmm. they could process it locally or regionally, they wouldn't have to throw it out. Or even if they sell it, if they sell it for processing, often it's shipped to the Midwest or the West uh, to get processed. The carbon usage on that's insane, the economic loss on that's insane. And so that's why our other big initiative, in, in addition to, again, online you know, uh, applications for a wide variety of programs, really is this idea of the federal government you know, aiding the creation of food jobs. Not picking winners and losers, losers, but giving small seed money, providing technical assistance, you know, getting the Small Business Administration on the same side as USDA, engaging in FDA, not just to regulate, but to give real technical assistance on food safety to these small businesses. And we think that can make a big difference. And, and with a particular focus on underserved, uh, perpetually impoverished rural areas like uh, WIP in the House, Jim Clyburn's pushed a particular emphasis on helping uh, people of color and indigenous people and women start those businesses could really advance both the racial and gender justice uh, agenda of this administration, but the so-called build back better agenda of rebuilding the American economy better than before the pandemic. What is something, an action item or two that you would say we are uniquely positioned to accomplish in the next year or two, given where we are right now? I think all those things can happen, particularly with the Democrats taking, you know, the Senate. There's no reason, you know, we can't raise the, the minimum wage. There's there's no reason uh, we can't, you know, expand SNAP. Another thing I didn't mention is universal, free, nutritious school meals. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous that I played suburban junior high school, uh, you know, soccer. I, I spent more time on the bench than on the fields. It won't shock you to know I did better on the debate team than the soccer team. And I got a free jersey regardless of my family's upper middle class income, and yet we don't provide every kid a school meal. So I think that's accomplishable. And the two things I suggested, uh, the food jobs initiative, much of which can be done administratively by the federal government without even uh, you know, uh, Congress, and, and this HOPE initiative, that would require legislation, but I think it'd be pretty popular. And again, a lot of that could be done administratively. You know, USDA alone has nearly 100,000 employees. Uh, when there's a real focus from the department, uh, they can do a lot of good. You know, as they used to say in those superhero movies, when they catch the really brilliant supervillain at the end, if only you used your, your powers for goodness. And that's how I look at, at, at the federal government properly run. The federal government saves lives and we need to get the federal government properly run again. Yeah. Okay. Um, question on something that wasn't in the memo. We know that, um, Obesity uh, is disproportionately affects lower income people. Yeah. One of the biggest intervention opportunities could be um, to like improve nutrition at the institutional level could be to create standards for foods purchased with SNAP benefits. This wasn't in your memo. 
I'm not surprised. Why um, is we, this something? We, we vehemently oppose that. We think it's very <laughs> class biased, has frankly racial undertones, uh, and is really hypocritical, pushed by a lot of upper middle class white people who have no problem eating, you know, 1,500-calorie artisanal pork belly dish, which, by the way, is subsidized by federal tax dollars because those pork bellies were, were transported over interstate highways. Uh, the pigs were fed with corn sure. subsidized by our Wait. tax dollars. And, and then they, 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 they're fine eating those really fancy and rich and expensive and yet extraordinarily caloric, uh, you know, artisanal dishes and then go berserk if a low-income person occasionally has uh, 120 or 160 calorie Coke as part of an otherwise balanced uh, diet. I, I should say is we strongly supported stronger nutrition standards at schools. Right. So, the, and, and, and you have a lot of nut on nutrition in, you know, nu nutrition education, nutrition standards in schools, which have been rolled back by this current administration. So there is clearly, you know, nutrition information being more visible on PAC. So it seems to be something that you do care about. Wouldn't this be a really good kind of, mm, I don't know, like behavioral, like a, like a nudge to get people um, to purchase foods that are better for themselves and yeah, the planet? But, but, Low-income people don't need to be nudged by non-low-income people. Well, the we all have, thing, you know. Yeah, like, you know, look, you know, Chris Christie and Oprah aren't poor, right? <laughs> you know, there, there are complex reasons for obesity. There are cultural reasons. There are economic reasons. There are genetic uh, you know, uh, reasons. There are economic you know, uh, reasons. And uh, you know, we know from our work, we, we at Hunger Free America, we started a community-supported agriculture project where we mm -hmm. subsidize, you know, fresh produce in low-income neighborhoods, allow people to use SNAP, and we had waiting lists. If you build it, they will come. If you make healthier food affordable and available and convenient, low-income people will eat it. The problem isn't that they need a nudge. The problem isn't their behavior. The problem is that they can't afford healthier food, and it doesn't exist in low-income neighborhoods. And let me also say that beyond sort of the practical issues, a far better response is making healthier food affordable and available, and beyond sort of the ethical, hypocritical issues of, of really, you know, treating uh, you know, low-income adults like they're infants, that we have to tell them oh, what's the, you know, good the, for what them. The WIC program, I don't think the WIC program, do you think that that treats women like they're infants? No, but the WIC program is meant to be supplemental specifically for the specific purpose of helping infant health. It's supposed to be supplemental to food purchases through the, the SNAP program. And lastly, I would add, this would backfire. Mm -hmm. uh, drinking went up under prohibition. A scientist from Weight Watchers once told me in households where you ban, uh, where you ban, uh, you know, uh, junk food, the kids get uh, uh, more obese over time when they leave home because they haven't been taught moderation. The one and only thing that works in keeping weight balanced and reducing weight if you're obese is bringing balance into your life and yeah. saying that one kind of food is bad, let a low-income family, if they're on SNAP, they can never use those benefits to get a birthday cake for their kid. Uh, not only, I think, is is problematic in terms of the message we're sending low-income people, but it would ultimately backfire. And I react so highly to this because I do think this comes not, you know, there's a lot of really bad science on this. You know, Michael Bloomberg had this chart that people didn't think too highly about, but he said, okay, the neighborhoods with higher obesity rates also have higher SNAP rates and also uh, have higher, you know, diabetes, you know, rates. Therefore, 
and have higher soda consumption rates. Therefore, A plus B plus C equals D, not understanding the basic social you know, science rule that correlation does not equal causation. There were 50 other factors that united those neighborhoods. All those neighborhoods voted against Michael Bloomberg. You know, you're talking to somebody who used to work in the Bloomberg administration, right? I, 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 do, I, I do know that. And, and, and he, he, you know, look, uh, when his, for all the talk, frankly, and we can debate this ever, that he uh, uh, managed by data, I, I don't think that's true. I think he managed by gut. And when his gut was right, when he was against gun violence, he took great political risk risking the wrath and maybe his life by going up against the NRA. And he was right, 100% right. Uh, when his gut told him to stand up for immigrants and stand up against the vile prejudice that said Muslims couldn't have a religious center near the 9-11 site, he was 100% right. Uh, but his, I understand he really didn't believe that child hunger was a problem in America or New York, that there wasn't really hunger, that the only problem was obesity, that he and many people of the social class did not understand the link between obesity and hunger. And he pushed these policies. And by the way, the day Mayor Bloomberg proposed banning soda in the SNAP program, soda was served at City Hall. Soda was served at the Bloomberg Corporation, which he still had an active role in governing. Soda was served at the Bloomberg uh, Foundation. Uh, and, and so uh, all of which, in some ways, were subsidized by, by, by tax dollars. I once debated the commissioner of health for the state of New York on whether he would ban soda in state office buildings. He said, no, that's entirely different. Many of the universities that have the institutes that are most aghast that poor people can use a SNAP to buy soda, uh, sell soda at, through machines and get income off of that, have soda at, at, at their, their cafeterias. So for me, obviously, this is both a practical issue, but I think it's the wrong way to address this problem. I think it's the wrong answer to the wrong problem. But I, I, I do think this is a broader issue. But the fact that we even have a SNAP program is because we don't trust poor people. Every other industrialized Western nation gives poor people cash. And already SNAP is so micromanaged. You, you can buy a cold chicken. You can't buy a hot chicken. You mm -hmm. can't ever go to a restaurant in most parts of the United States. And to add these other restrictions, here are the foods we deem that you're good enough to get. And here are the foods we say you're not good enough to get. I, I think that's uh, very problematic. So, yes, uh, you probably thought you'd get a strong reaction to that. And to plug my last book, uh, America, <laughs> We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the country, I, I devote much of a chapter to to uh, this very issue. And, and you know, and, and there is just such sanctimony about it. People push this. They tell me, you know, they've equated a soda with heroin. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's really not. If you have 160-calorie soda, a few times a week as part of a balanced diet, it's absolutely fine. The problem is when you have, you know, a big gulp every five seconds. And that's why I propose more nutrition education. Uh, you know, I, I would. Yeah, but everybody knows that soda is bad for you. Everybody knows soda is bad for you. That's like, okay, okay. You, you know what? You're, we're going to, how about I'm going to read your book and then I'm going to have you on and we're going to have another conversation about. If you can get your old boss to debate me, I'd love to uh, debate you. <laughs> clearly, yeah. I'm not a, clearly, I'm not a good stand in. Well, I think you're probably doing better than he would. Look, he, he, also, <laughs> he also insisted on fingerprinting people when applying for SNAP, uh, even after you, uh, you know, California and Texas banned that. So, uh, you know, again, if I was an anti-gun uh, you know, violence advocate, I think he was the greatest mayor in American history. I'm an anti-hunger advocate, and I can't say that. Okay, here's another question you might love. Um, 
food is as cheap as it's ever been, right? Americans spend the least on it as they ever have historically. At the turn of the century, Americans spent 40% of their income on food. By the 1950s, it was 30%, and today it's under 10% of their total income. We spend less money than almost every country in the world, um, and we know that food comes at a cheap food comes at a high price, not just in terms of quality and the repercussions on our collective health, but also in the form of affordable wages, especially for those growing and producing food. So we have a problem where people don't have enough money to pay for food, and the food doesn't actually reflect the cost of production. How do we square these these two kind of issues? Look, there's no question the food system is broken in, in, in uh, America. And I would say you know, low food prices were virtually the only benefit that being poor in America ha- had compared to being poor in Europe because food prices were a higher percentage of the income in Europe. That was before the pandemic. Food prices have shot up since then for key things, and, and there's been gouging, and we'll see if, if they go down. Uh, a lot of people say the answer to our broken food system is just, you know, small is beautiful, local is beautiful. And mm-hmm. everyone would sort of produce and, pro- you know, their own you know, food. I don't think that's realistic in the modern right. economy. And what we need to do is therefore combine the efficiencies of modernity mm-hmm. with social justice. So we need to keep the efficiencies of a large industrialized food system, but have laws and social movements that force it to be better for the environment, better for workers, better for consumers, better for poor people, more uh, really rewarding the small farmers, not just the manufacturers. And I I liken this to the auto industry. A hundred years ago, the auto industry, and by no means is it perfect now, but a hundred years ago, it brutally, you know, destroyed uh, unions through sending in literally, you know, private troops to beat the crap out of unions. It it would just put whatever chemicals into the River Rouge outside of of Detroit. Uh, They they laughed for decades at uh, mandatory seatbelts, no less, you know, uh, know, airbags. And what we didn't do is say every town's going to have their own local auto manufacturer because that wouldn't have been realistically economically. But we did build consumer movements, environmental movements, worker rights movement, union movements to require them to be better. And that's what I think we need to do. We need to take the good things about the food system and, you know, low prices are good for poor people. Let's 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 be clear about that. And some foodies, you know, say, "Oh, everyone should be paid more for food." That's easy to say if you can afford it. So we, but we need the farmers to be better reimbursed for this, and particularly you know, small and family-sized farmers and medium-sized farmers and fruit and vegetable farmers. And that's why I think we need to reform our, our food policies from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So second to last question. I'm wondering how you, you talked earlier about, you know, big corporations who, um, you know, maybe write big checks for the new like soup kitchen or whatever. Um, and certainly kind of funding anti-hunger programs or donating to anti-hunger programs is there's a big halo effect around that. Um, how are you holding corporations, those same ones perhaps who are donating to create feeding centers accountable for making systematic changes that would go a long way to ending hunger in America? It's easy. There's a big company that gives us a fair amount of money. And before I was getting money for them, I met a senior vice president and I said they they need to uh, raise wages for their workers. Uh, And so the two are not mutually exclusive. You know, our, our 
our determination on Hungry Free America, whether we take money, is not how they made it, but what they want us to do with it. And mm-hmm. corporations are funding us to help more people get SNAP, which may benefit them, but certainly benefits the people we represent. Uh, low-income, you know, corporations are funding us to do a lot of actually, uh, you know, progressive things. So I think uh, using their money in a good way, but also holding them accountable and continuing to push them to be better. A lot of people who take money say, "Well, let's get in the room, and now you know it's better to have a dialogue with them." That's why we don't condemn them in, in public, and I get that. But that means when you're in the room, you have to say it. When I'm in the room, I do say it. And with some of these funders, it's almost a running joke. Every conversation. You know, I don't doubt that, Joel. I'm going to tell them we, we need, you know, higher wages for their workers. And that's the top way to reduce. But, but also, you know, groups like mine shouldn't need to exist. I'm serious. About, yeah. you know, ending hunger in America, then going to open a nightclub in Takara, whatever I'm going to do, you know, uh, next is, is that other countries don't have all these anti-hunger charities and they don't have all this hunger. So we really, you know, need to get the corporations and the political system to create wages, reduce costs and, 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 and hunger. And that would be my message to political leaders, to corporate leaders, to charitable leaders, to foundation leaders and to fellow nonprofits. Let's do it. So my last, last question, Vilsack, mixed reviews. You seem to be pretty excited about his appointment. I'm biased because I know him. I worked with him and I worked with his uh, appointees. His last undersecretary of food and Act and nutrition services, Kevin Kincannon, mm-hmm. was probably the best person in that position in, in, in the modern era. They used every administrative tool necessary that they could to increase access to the federal nutrition you know, safety net. Uh, some of the things he's been uh, blamed for, I, I think he was sort of a uh, uh, took the blame for some broader issues and from other leadership I- issues. Uh, but I, in, in general, uh, I, I think uh, he's been a, a positive factor, certainly on, on hunger. And I know for a fact he's listening to a wide variety of diverse forces right now, and he's reporting to a different president with a different agenda. Granted, Biden was Obama's vice president, but he's been very clear he has his own agenda. And I, I believe Vilsack will go in with a renewed vigor and, and tackling a, a a, a, a new you know agenda that certainly builds upon the good things they did in, in the past, uh, but we will see. Uh, mm-hmm. We hope to work closely with him, but we will hold him and everyone else accountable. They can go to hungerfreeamerica.org and under what's new and different is 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 this memo to the Biden administration, as well as a plethora of other information. If you need food, you can go to our website and find out where you can get food, or you can also call our hunger hotline at one 3 hungry one 3 hungry uh, every uh, workday of the week, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. till uh, 10 p.m. Eastern time. Or if you have money to donate, you can donate at hungerfreeamerica.org. You can find out how how to be a skills-based volunteer, uh, some of our policy priorities, or you can uh, read this ultra-delightful 41-page or so, you know, wonkish memo to the Biden-Harris administration. We're going to have to leave it there for today. Um, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors. Our show intern is Amber Chong, and our show engineer is Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
for our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.